Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Lin. Hello, and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the ISLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we'll discuss the current and future management of pleural mesothelioma. Mesothelioma is a particularly challenging cancer to treat, and there had been relatively few updates in its management until the recent integration of immunotherapy in the treatment guidelines. However, there are several different strategies being explored this field's become pretty complex. To help us navigate, I'm joined by two global experts in mesothelioma. Our first guest from the University of Leicester in the UK, I'm joined by Dr. Dean Fennell, Professor of Thoracic Oncology, Director of the Leicester Mesothelioma Research Institute, and past president of IMIG. Dean, thank you for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. Nice to meet you, Stephen. I'm also joined by Dr. Federica Grosso, thoracic medical oncologist and head of the mesothelioma unit at Azienda Ospedaliera Alessandria in Alessandria, Italy. Federica, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. It's really a pleasure for me to be here. I'm particularly dedicated to mesothelioma. As you know, I work in a place where the incidence of this disease is more than 10, high, 10 times higher than in the rest of the country. Yeah, they're staggering numbers. And so on that note, we, we've known for quite a while that mesothelioma has this strong link to asbestos exposure and quite a long latency period. Um, you know that in Alessandria, where, where there are sort of more asbestos exposures, as a result of the association between mesothelioma and asbestos, asbestos use here in the U.S., where I am, is you know pretty tightly regulated, but exposure risk varies significantly around the world. Uh, Federica, can you talk a little bit about ex asbestos exposures where you are in Italy? Yes, sure. Since 2002 in Italy, we have a national mesothelioma registry to monitor all the cases of mesothelioma as well as asbestos exposures. This registry has an operative center in each Italian region that is called CORD, and each physician in Italy that diagnose a new case of mesothelioma as the obligation to report it to the referral core. Then a specialized personnel of the core contact the patients and administer a very comprehensive questionnaire to collect the information about the asbestos exposure. And this is why in Italy we have such a complete set of data. 70% of the exposure are still occupational, 5% familiar in Italy, 5% environmental and we'll say 2-3% related to hobby. Currently, actually, a broad spectrum of activities is responsible for this disease and uh, the mostly recognized shipyards, aeronautics uh, or railways account only today for 20-30% of all the exposure, but many other productive sectors are emerging as relevant causes for asbestos exposures, for example, hydraulics, insulator, construction builders, and also renovation workers, and many other very unexpected and unknown occupational exposures have been discovered 
thanks to uh, the inquiries of our registry. For example, jewelers who used to cut the gold and precious stones on the asbestos tablets, sugar factories that were really full of asbestos due to the high temperature that is required to uh, refine the sugar, and also oil mills uh, that require special asbestos gaskets uh, in the oil pressing system, and uh, again, textile industry, because the brake system of the weaving loom were made of asbestos. Then we have clusters of environmental exposure, such as in the work where I, um, in the place where I work, for example, Casale Monferrato, due to abandoned asbestos semen industrial plants, uh, due to abandoned mines, and also to shipbuilding and repair industries. For example, in the Piedmont region, that is in the west, uh, uh, northwest of the country, the biggest asbestos mine in Europe, that is uh, the stone quarry of Balangero, has been active until 1992. And also in the place where I work, there was the biggest plants in the world of asbestos corrugated roof tiles. It had been in production until 1986 and generated really, really a huge environmental exposure due to the base material of the production. And uh, again, in Italy, there is another source of contamination that is soil. It's typical a place in Sicily that is called Bianca Villa, where the soil contains fluoroedenite. That is a mineral that is very similar in morphology and composition to the asbestos fibers of uh, actinolite and share also the same pathogenic properties. So this is the situation in, it in Italy, basically. I think that a lot of people are sort of aware that asbestos is this dangerous exposure. And as a result, around the world, there are different regulations. But you know, sometimes things happen, as you mentioned, mines that were tightly regulated get abandoned. Um, factories go to business and there's no one there left to sort of dispose of that asbestos properly. Or you know, increasingly we're seeing with climate change, unexpected weather, natural disasters, this can lead to sort of unanticipated asbestos exposure washing up on, on beaches. And it makes it challenging in part because of the long latency period between exposure and disease. Dean, what, what's your personal opinion on asbestos use and regulation today? Are people aware enough of the dangers of exposure? So if I take the UK as an example, we had um, the banning of asbestos uh, in buildings, new buildings, as late as the 1990s. So what we have is a legacy, actually, of buildings, uh, mainly public buildings, where asbestos has been um, you know, incorporated into the building work, and, and it remains. The awareness of asbestos uh, risk, I think, has has increased over the last few decades in the UK. Of course, with the growth of mesothelioma in the UK, this has been, uh, I think, a trigger for increased awareness amongst the public. You know, we do see, of course, globally that asbestos is still being traded. And despite the ban in the UK for using asbestos in new buildings, uh, this is being worked with currently, as we speak, in, in some countries around the world, particularly developing countries. So I think, you know, to think about the regulatory environment there are certainly some countries who are allowing this to happen for trade to be um, such that uh, there is export, continued export, and also the import and use um, tonnage of, of um, asbestos use is significant in, in countries, South America, in the Far East, for example. And so, um, yeah, the problem remains and uh, regulation is still not as watertight, I think, as we'd like. 
when we have a diagnosis of mesothelioma, let's talk a little bit about the the current state of, of management of approach. A lot of our listeners are more familiar with non-small cell lung cancer, where molecular testing is a very important part of treatment. Not typically, you know, you don't hear a lot about that for mesothelioma. Uh, at the recent IMIG meeting, which both of you are, are involved with, you know, there was a, a presentation on BAP1, BAP1, and a germline risk of mesothelioma. Um, Federica, should someone diagnosed with mesothelioma today be tested for this BAP1 mutation? This is a very difficult question. I would reply ideally yes. They should be tested, but not only for BAP1, but also for other pathogenic germline variants of DNA repair genes. But we must have very clear in mind that to date, this information for the patient has no therapeutic implication, unlike other cancers, for example. But detecting BAP1 mutation has a substantial medical and social impact because almost all carriers will develop a cancer during their lifetimes. One third of them, two to seven cancer, and these mutations are autosomal dominant. Therefore, also family members should be tested as they will benefit from screening and early detection. Then we know that this kind of pathogenic variants, mostly in BAP1, are present in 8-10% of all patients. They are much more prevalent in young patients, in those with a family history of mesothelioma. These mutations are responsible for a syndrome that is called uh, um, tumor predisposition syndromes that include mesothelioma, but also uvea and cutaneous melanoma, renal cell carcinoma, uh, breast cancer, cholangiocarcinoma, and are very typical the skin lesions that are called BAPOMAS, uh, that are of melanocytic origin. Hmm. Uh, these patients with um, mesothelioma and BAP1 mutation is generally a less aggressive course, but we still do not know why. Others have aggressive course, but they usually respond very well to chemo. In our series, for example, we tested almost 300 patients and the frequency of uh, um, pathogenic mutant variant was 8%. And our patients with pathogenic germline variants developed mesothelioma with uh, a statistically significant lower intensity of asbestos exposure than non-mutated patients. We heard the timing that um, NCI has two very important clinical trials for these patients uh, and also for their relatives uh, that uh, offer free cancer prevention and cancer therapy. The main objective, of course, is to uh, determine which is the best screening methodology and also the definition of the natural history of these cancers. And also at timing, uh, we heard about the phase two window of opportunity studies that, that are evaluating sort of targeted approach is uh, in patients with BAP1 germline mutation and early stage mesothelioma, one with a demethylating agent and one with an MDM2 inhibitor. Then these are really very interesting studies also to uh, gain insight into the pathogenesis of this cancer. What I do in my clinical practice, since uh, the test here is not approved and reimbursed for patients, I'm testing all patients with uh, familiar history suggestive for germline mutation within a research program. And for patients that I see as second opinion, I usually uh, suggest the consultation for screenings in families with very high risk features, such as three or more um, mesothelioma or ruver melanoma, renal cell carcinoma and cholangiocarcinoma within two generations. This is my practice. So very 
rapidly evolving space. We're thinking of other primaries. We're thinking of maybe screening family members, but hopefully in the near future, more personalization of, of therapy. Um, when we talk about therapy for mesothelioma, I know a lot of times we focus on surgery and the role of surgery has historically been a little controversial. What type of surgery, whether to do surgery, that's really covered by the, the Mars 2 trial results. In this episode, we want to focus on unresectable mesothelioma, on systemic treatment. And as we know, in the past few years, it's been immunotherapy that's really changed our treatment algorithms. In the setting of previous therapy, we have the phase three confirmed trial. I think it's a good place to start. Uh, Dean, you, you led this effort. You presented an update at IMIG 2023. Can you explain the, the results of the confirmed trial? Yeah. So if I just describe the study design briefly, it was a, a randomized phase three in patients receiving either nivolumab single agent or placebo, so double-blind study. And um, this was conducted really to try and establish efficacy in the relapse setting. Of course, we now know that the front line is really where, much as with lung cancer, immunotherapy is being used predominantly. But this is a study that met its primary endpoint. So we saw an improvement in progression-free survival. Um, hazard ratio uh, was 0.65 in the update. So within uh, the IMIG and ASCO meetings this year, we presented the mature uh, data. So this is a, a co-primary endpoint of progression-free survival, which was met. The overall survival at the extended uh, data lock, actually 32 months, we saw crossover, 18% crossover. And uh, this was associated with a favorable hazard ratio. Um, it was actually 0.8. So that had climbed with a, um, a, a sort of significance of p-value that was not significant. And this was really down to the fact that during the latter part of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, we had nivolumab become available for patients in the UK. So many patients were unblinded in the control arm who went on to receive um, the nivolumab. Now, in terms of the current state of affairs, because we have immunotherapy in the front line, we believe that uh, the confirm uh, trial becomes a very useful platform for helping us understand how immunotherapy is actually working in patients with mesothelioma at all. It's a cancer which probably shouldn't respond to immunotherapy. The mutation burden is incredibly low, somewhere around two um, mutations per megabase. We see an awful lot of CDKN2A mutation, which has been attributed to a cold immune microenvironment, lots of immune uh, suppressive cells within the tumor microenvironment, and also a very low PDL1 expression. These features, you know, mitigating responses to mesothelioma, we still see patients who have very dramatic responses. And um, so what we're doing and what we presented in IMIG was some of the first data around the translational work that we're doing. What we did is we took patients who had a, a fantastic response. These were the partial responders. And we took patients who had clearly progressive or refractory, you know, refractory disease, um, these sort of extreme phenotypes, if you like. And then we we applied a multi-amic approach to study them. So this involved whole exome sequencing, transcriptome sequencing, and uh, multiplex immunofluorescence to examine the tumor microenvironment. So in summary, what we found, and, and using with this very high dimensional data machine learning to help us sift features that were relevant, it was very clear that the genomic landscape had little impact, at least in those factors that we were examining. The tumor mutation burden was no different between responders, non-responders. Um, and in fact, when we look at the genomic architecture in general, things like new antigen burden, and clonal new antigen burden, and so on, 
we really saw very little difference. Even loss of MHC actually was similar between the uh, the two groups. It's when we look at the immune landscape that we see something very different. And in the transcriptome data, we could see clear evidence of immune activation. These, by the way, were in diagnostic biopsies. So these are tumors that we think were born sensitive effectively, because of course, these biopsies were before any prior treatment. This was a diagnosis. So yes, yeah, so there was a lot of inflammation happening in terms of uh, transcription of chemokines, particularly um, uh, CCL19, we saw as being extremely associated, uh, correlated um, with response. And um, when we actually look at the tumor microenvironment directly, we can see an abundance of T cells. Uh, so something is drawing these T cells into the tumor. We don't know precisely what that is. In another publication of a MIST-4, which is a small phase two trial, we found actually that the gut microbiome, certainly the the microbiota and the genera that you look at in the microbiota, some of these were very closely associated with T cell uh, in, in uh, infiltration, suggesting that there may be tumor extrinsic factors which are controlling tumor infiltration. This, of course, has been seen in lung cancer and melanoma, and uh, we suspect that this uh, paradigm might be something that's uh, contributing to response and sensitivity in mesothelioma. It's, it's fascinating. And I think that, you know, a better understanding of immunotherapy in any disease helps it in every disease. And <laughs> it's kind of humbling to, you know, we, we think of, you know, immunotherapy as we have a basic understanding of how it works, antigens, MHC recognition. And then you're right, mesothelioma kind of breaks those rules, but maybe our understanding even in melanoma and lung cancer is is wrong, is off. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting that we are focusing more now on maybe some more host uh, biomarkers and, and just tumor. Um, you know, clearly immunotherapy has, has changed oncology. It's changed mesothelioma. Federica, the phase three promise meso trial. This is a study that compared pembrolizumab to single agent chemotherapy in a previously treated setting. And I think you'll agree, a little, little disappointing um, results. Can you discuss that in the, in the context of confirm and tell us what role does immunotherapy have today if someone receives frontline chemo? Yes, sure. Promismiso was a phase three trial investigating pembrolizumab versus a single agent gemcitabine or vinorelbin, according to the investigator choice. Um, the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. Crossover to pembrolizumab was allowed for patients failing uh, uh, gemcitabine or vinorelbin. The primary endpoint PFS was not met. The study enrolled very fast, 150 patients in less than one year, and no differences were seen in the PFS curves that overlapped along all their course. PFS was 2.5 in the Pembro harm and 3.4 in the chemo with an ratio of one. And no differences were seen also in the survival curves, even after adjusting for crossover. But uh, what we saw in that study was a statistically significant and I would also had clinically meaningful difference in response rate. The response rate was 22% for pembrolizumab in line with early phase two studies versus 6% as expected with chemotherapy. This pembro safety profile was uh, of no concern. And uh, the conclusion, as you said rightly, were quite disappointing in the sense that pembrolizumab was not superior to chemotherapy. 
but uh, from the first time I saw the results of this study, what I thought is that uh, this study showed us uh, that uh, um, immunotherapy can have really uh, deep responses, long-lasting responses. We now are quite used to see these kind of responses in our patients, and I'm convinced that tumor response is a very important endpoint for mesothelioma patients that usually present with very huge and advanced disease, very symptomatic, and in them, the reduction of pleural masses is almost always uh, associated with symptom reliefs, uh, improvement in quality of life. We have no standard of care for second-line mesothelioma failing standard uh, chemotherapy. And these results of the promise, along with the results of the confirm, I think that uh, strongly suggest a role for support a role for immunotherapy in advanced mesothelioma patients after failing chemotherapy one or two line of chemotherapy but i think that immunotherapy is a role in these patients yeah completely agree federica and i think you'd also agree that there's been more promise uh, to say in the first line setting as you mentioned and now we have multiple positive phase three trials and so here's where it gets a little complicated um the optimal strategy still debatable, and we're still waiting for a couple of studies to read out. But I think what what changed the conversation for us was the phase three checkmate seven four three trial, and that showed superior outcomes with the PD one inhibitor nivolumab and the CTLA four inhibitor ipilimumab compared to chemotherapy. But in some really important, you know, sub analyses, not all patients got the same kind of benefit. So, Dean, when we look at checkmate seven four three. Um, if this is available and access is a whole nother issue, but if, if this regimen is available, is this an appropriate strategy for all patients with mesothelioma? Well, I think um, there's absolutely no question that for patients with non-epithelioid mesothelioma, the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab is a game changer compared to chemotherapy. We saw um, hazard ratio for overall survival in the 0.4 range and um this is unheard of in, in any sort of previous trial for mesothelium patients. The reason for that actually wasn't the, the massive, well, it's all relative, isn't it? But I guess the main you know, fact here is that we saw, and we, we've known this for a long time, tremendous drug resistance, chemotherapy resistance in patients with non-epithelial mesothelioma. There's emerging data that these tumors have um, uh, epithelial mesenchymal transition that's very active in these, these tumors. We know that's associated with drug resistance as well as a more aggressive phenotype that we normally see in sarcomatoid mesotheliomas. And um, that relative drug resistance um, was was so significant that undoubtedly you'd want to give these patients immunotherapy. The situation becomes much more complicated than when we think about uh, the uh, epithelioid majority of patients, both in terms of the progression-free survival and overall survival. Statistically speaking, these are pretty much equivalent and, um, you know, having two treatments which are effective and, and offer in the order of around six months of disease control is, is obviously better than one. But yes, it, it does raise the question, particularly in light of the N227 data, where we're seeing an increase in what we'd expect uh, for chemotherapy alone uh, with the combination of pembrolizumab 
uh, 19.8 months, I believe, in uh, in the epithelioid subgroup, there is a question as to whether or not for epithelioid patients, the discussion becomes a little bit more nuanced. I think also if we're thinking about tumours where patients are quite symptomatic, given the time to response that we see with chemotherapy in the epithelioid setting, I do believe that there are certain physicians and, and people around the world who will want to you know, include chemotherapy in their regimens in front line where they feel that a rapid response uh, is going to be beneficial to patients. And that may be more in, in regions and jurisdictions where um, ipilimumab, nivolumab is available after chemotherapy. That certainly isn't the case in the UK. So we don't have that uh, flexibility to uh, to discuss options of, of first line. It's strictly immunotherapy at the present time for the UK. Dean, this um, difference between sarcomatoid and epithelial, um, did you, you know, how do we explain that? Did you see in your, your, your analyses, your translational analyses from Confirm, see differences in immune activation cells in um, sort of these, these phenotypes based on the histology? So yes, with regard to chemotherapy um, response, this is almost certainly EMT. So the EMT, um, rather than sort of changing the immune microenvironment to become more favorable, because again, if you look at the outcomes in the non-epithelioid and the epithelioid to immunotherapy, there's not that much difference, actually. Um, in fact, we think EMT from Confirm and other studies may actually be a negative factor in terms of uh, immunotherapy as well. But the effect on chemotherapy is so dramatic that you see this huge uh, difference with a very poor outcome, eight months or so survival with chemotherapy compared to 16 or so with immunotherapy in the sarcomatoid setting. So it is entirely the um, biology of drug resistance, of chemotherapy resistance, I think, that underpinned this apparent superiority with the immunotherapy. Um, but this was entirely due to a very, very poor performance of the control arm, not, mm -hmm. not of a of a major superiority in the experimental arm. Federica, to, to talk a little bit more about the, the chemotherapy and immunotherapy combinations, you know, this is uh, our, you know, promising strategy sort of empirically for non-small cell lung cancer, for small cell lung cancer. And we saw in the DREAM trial this sort of initial efficacy of, of this combination. Uh, as mentioned, the recent N227, the IFCT 1901 trial of first-line chemotherapy versus chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab, that was a positive trial. Can you highlight those results and sort of explain that? Yes, with pleasure. You know that the Italy was uh, um, the top enroller and mm -hmm. half of patients were enrolled here in Italy. And my center was the top enroller with 54 patients enrolled. So I also have had quite good practical experience with this study. Mm -hmm. As you exactly said, uh, combining chemotherapy with durvalumab both in the DREAM and uh, also in the US PRIO 505 show substantial efficacy. And in the US uh, PRIO 505, also the results were really very promising for epithelial subtype. And this generated a great expectation for the results of the DREAM 227. It was a phase three that enrolled uh, 440 patients uh, untreated. Um, resectable. They were randomized to receive uh, standard chemo up to six courses with or without pembrolizumab that can be continued until uh, two years. The primary endpoint was uh, overall survival. 
the median uh, overall survival in the um, combined harm Pembro plus chemo was 17.3 months versus 16.1 months in the chemo harm, corresponding to an answer ratio of 0.79. That means a reduction in the risk of death of 21%. But as we are used to seeing with immunotherapy, the benefit emerges in the tails of the curves. And indeed, the survival proportion at two at three years for Pembro plus chemo versus chemo showed an absolute gain of 6% and 8%. Also, median PFS was superimposable, but again, the proportion of patients free from progression at one and two years was significantly higher in the uh, Pembro-containing harm than in a chemo harm corresponding to an answer ratio of 0.80, that means 20% reduction of the risk of progression. Response rate, as expected, uh, that was uh, assessed by Blind and Independent Central Review, was significantly higher in the Pembroke-containing harm, 62% versus 38%, as well as treatment-related adverse events were higher, of course, in the combined harm with uh, a higher proportion of G3, G4 adverse events. The trial stratified patient by histology and uh, the exploratory analysis uh, surprisingly show a more pronounced improvement in patients with non-epithelial subtype uh, again. Um, we expected something more for epithelioid uh, actually. The conclusion of the study was that adding Pembro uh, to chemo uh, improved the survival, improved progression-free survival, but I think that uh, uh, the main message of this study is uh, the higher response rate, the very, very small percentage of patients, uh, early progressor, only 4%, and the responses that were deep and very quick. And this last data, in my opinion, makes the substantial difference compared to the Checkmate 743. The overall survival and PFS curves in this study do not cross, unlike Checkmate 743, and the proportion of fast progressor patients is really very low. And this finding, of course, may have a therapeutic impact in the clinical practice. Mm. Yeah, similar themes to, to some other diseases where that initial chemotherapy adds you know, toxicity, adds cost, um, but you know, you avoid that sort of early progression and that sort of precarious dip in PFS we sometimes see with immunotherapy alone. So, you know, let me let me just ask you both directly. Let's say we're living in a world where access is not an issue and you have Checkmate 743. So you have nivolumab plus tipilimumab and you have, you know, in the 227-IFCT-1901, you have chemotherapy and Pembro, both these regimens available, and the MAPS chemotherapy bevacizumab regimen. How do you choose between those three approaches? Um, we know it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all. So, Dean, what's your approach off-study? Hmm. Well, I think at the moment, um, as I say, for the non-epithelioid patients, ipilimumab, nivolumab, um, with the survival that we've seen in the Checkmate 743 would be my my choice for that group. Looking at the subgroup analysis in the uh, in two two seven, that was a lower survival, um, a few months lower, I think thirteen or so for the non epithelioid. So yes, the combination immunotherapy for the non epithelioids for patients with epithelioid mesothelioma. Of course, we have to see what um, you know studies like BEAT will show when combining bevacizumab. But in terms of the in two two seven data and the uh, almost twenty months, uh, we've seen this with devalumab as well. That at the present time seems to be the sort of outer limit of what we've found with systemic therapy in epithelioids. So I would definitely go with the chemoimmunotherapy in that sort of uh, epithelioid group 
uh, at the present time, despite the fact that it's only, you know, a, a reasonably modest improvement over chemotherapy in, in 227, we still talk about giving our best treatments first. And so uh, I think for epithelioids that at the present time would be the the thing, given that our comparisons of um, when we look at the checkmate 743 and we consider the difference between the immunotherapy and the chemotherapy, seeing no significant alteration between those two arms in that subgroup, I think it's fair to say that chemoimmunotherapy has the advantage. And certainly we'll be better informed with longer follow-up, and we're, we're wanting to see what those landmark survival rates are, what those tails are. But today, Federico, with what we know, if you have access to everything, how would you approach frontline therapy for someone with advanced unresectable mesothelioma? I basically do agree with Dean. For pure and sarcomatoid, uh, predominant sarcomatoid histology, since we know they are resistant to chemo, my best option is, of course, epinevo. I think that for pure or predominant epithelioid, we have to consider also disease-related factors and clinical data for each patient. For example, for very symptomatic patients with huge disease extension, aggressive course, in, in who there is a need for a quick cytoreduction, I think that chemo plus pembro is the first choice, just to maximize the probability of response and not to risk a fast progression because the risk in this patient is that they won't be able to receive to get a second line of treatment. And the same is true for patients in whom, for example, in the event of fast progression, we can predict the complication or symptoms that are very difficult to control and manage in mesothelioma patients, such as diseases involving the mediastinum. In the other patients, I think that the decision should be shared after appropriate information and discussion. We have two treatment options with very similar efficacy data and safety profile. The advantage in starting with Ipinivo is that we can count then on a, the availability of a further line with known and consolidated efficacy data that is standard chemotherapy. So I think that this decision uh, must be shared with the patient. Dean, uh, any biomarkers that might push you one way or another? It seems like pdl one is not too useful here. That's true. So um, <clears throat> pdl one may have some negative prognostic value. We've shown actually in the confirmed that if the pdl one is above 50%, that does appear indeed to be associated with um, benefit from single agent uh, anti-PD-1. But the frequency is very, very low. So less than 5% of patients have that uh, very high uh, score, tumor portion score with a 22C3 antibody. I think for us, actually, from the confirmed study, what we did find is that uh, TLSs, these tertiary lymphoid structures that we've been seeing in other cancers, the presence of those is a, a marker of sensitivity for immunotherapy. There are studies which are being developed now to look at tertiary lymphoid structure stratified uh, therapy. So this could be um, a practically um, applicable test uh, because, of course, it's a morphological correlate that can be picked up um, at, on diagnostic slides. In terms of uh, genomics, we don't see anything at the present time that would be predictive. It was suggested in the uh, early Devalimab chemotherapy studies that um, homologous recombination deficiency might be associated with benefit. That, of course, I think is for chemotherapy, not for immunotherapy. Mm. So in summary, I think, yes, uh, tertiary infrastructure is a whole promise, and um, that's something that perhaps uh, could be looked at prospectively. Federica, I wanted to ask you about the tumor-treating fields therapy and mesothelioma. Can you talk a little bit about that approach? 
Yes. Um, I had really a very positive experience with this strategy. My center gave a great contribution to the stellar study that was the one that led to FDA approval of this strategy in 2019 in US. Um, these are kind of innovative antimitotic local-regional treatment uh, consisting of low-intensity alternating electric fields that are delivered through a portable medical device and act by disrupting the spindle formation during metaphase and also by interfering with the intracellular organelles localization during telophase. There were many interesting preclinical data showing that mesothelioma cell line were highly sensitive to uh, tumor treating fields in vitro with synergistic effect when combined with both pemetrexin and cisplatin, and this provided the rationale to test this strategy in this disease. The STELLAR was a phase two single arm study um, enrolling 80 patients with unresectable meso of any subtype. They received tumor treating fields plus standard chemotherapy up to six courses. And then patients not progressing could receive maintenance therapy with tumor treating fields alone. The primary endpoint was the overall survival and the primary endpoint was met. The median overall survival was 18.2 months. That means an increase by more than six months with respect to um, the historical control. That was the rule to define the study positive. The median overall survival in the epithelioid subtype exceeded 21 months. The response rate was 40% with a 90%, more than 90% of patients achieving disease control. So the treatment was very, very well tolerated. The only toxicity that was related to the use of the device was skin toxicity, such as dermatitis, that occurred in almost 70-80% of patients, but only 5% of them had severe dermatitis. Now, to confirm the efficacy of this strategy in the routine clinical practice, an observational multicenter study is going to start very soon. It has already been approved by our IRB. It will uh, uh, include 200 patients in Europe in 15 centers in Germany, Netherlands, uh, and Italy that will receive tumor treating field along with both chemo and immunotherapy according to um, the internal guidelines. The primary endpoint will be to confirm overall survival, secondary endpoint, the quality of life that was not collected and assessed in the phase two, and also again uh, to confirm the safety of this strategy. What my passion really appreciate about uh, this kind of treatment is the possibility to receive a continuative active treatment also outside the hospital at their home while they are doing their everyday activity, a treatment that can cover also the breaks between one course and the next one, and that can be also extended after the end of chemotherapy. I had really a very positive experience with my patients in this study. Yeah, it's it's an interesting approach. And you know, I, I actually personally don't have experience with it. It's uh, an, an innovative technique, and, and there's some interesting things being applied. When I look at the data for mesothelioma, you know, it's not like this large phase three placebo or sham controlled study, uh, it is FDA approved, but because it is a device, it sort of has a different regulatory path. And so my question for you, Federica, is, you know, you have to wear this vest sort of for most of the day. Is Has that been difficult for patients? No, no. They, they kept the device on for uh, 16 hours uh, during the night, usually. And also while doing their everyday activity, I had one patient that used to play tennis with the device on. It was not an issue to keep on the device. Hmm. 
Okay. Uh, Dean, do you have any experience with the, the tumor treating fields? Uh, no, not directly, actually. I've been very interested, though, obviously, in the um, the way in which this is working. Very innovative. Anti-mitotic, we've worked with Vineralbine and mesothelioma and shown in the VIN trial that, you know, uh, being able to have a cytostatic activity does control the cancer meaningfully. So that's partly probably how it's working. But uh, very interested to hear from Federica about the immunotherapy combination, because there's some interesting preclinical data suggesting sting gas activation as a immune modulating activity of TT fields. So that's probably one to watch out for. Hmm. Uh, Federica, I wanted to talk a little bit about this upcoming Italian atezomiso study that I know you're involved in. That's in resected mesothelioma, right? Yeah. It's in resected mesothelioma is our last effort here in Italy. It's a multicenter double-blind placebo-controlled phase trial that is evaluating the role of uh, adjuvant atezolizumab in the perioperative setting. Uh, plural mesothelioma patients who have undergone conservative surgery that can be pleurectomy decortication or extended pleurectomy decortication without residual disease uh, and uh, with perioperative uh, chemotherapy that can be uh, administered before and after surgery will be randomized to receive uh, atezolizumab up to two years uh, or placebo, uh, up to one year actually, uh, versus placebo until an acceptable toxicity patient uh, or physician decision. The primary endpoint of the study is disease-free survival and secondary endpoints are overall survival and quality of life. Overall, the study will enroll 160 patients, but 40 have already been enrolled. This study currently represents for Italy the only opportunity to administer immunotherapy to epithelioid patients. So I think really is a, a, a good opportunity for us. There's also a very interesting translational component of the study. The tumor samples are centrally reviewed and centrally analyzed for gene expression profile, for biological characterization. This will generate a large data set that could help possibly has in gaining insight into this cancer and hopefully in gaining insight into predictive biomarkers. Yeah, and, and you know, it can be compared with the confirmed data samples as well to sort of see if uh, we, we see those in larger specimens. Would be great, yeah. Uh, Dean, other trials we're waiting for in this unresectable space? I know you mentioned the BTOG study. Um, well, certainly um, in the front line, we've got uh, the BEAT MESO study. So this is the ETOP trial. This would be a little bit like the... Um, uh, Impow 150, so looking at a uh, combination of atezolizumab, bevacizumab with chemotherapy in the front line versus uh, the MAPS-1 combination of Pemetrexacarbo plus bevacizumab. That should be reading out pretty soon, and I, I'd be hopeful that we may may hear about the results of that later this year. And then, of course, we've got the DREAM um, 3R study, which will be a DREAMer study next year sometime. There are studies being planned, you know, obviously in the um, relapse setting, and we'll hear more about those, I'm sure, later in the year, next year. We're focusing really on precision medicine in the UK with our um, former MIST study being a pilot and moving now into another study called SELECT, where we're, we're hoping we can have a bit more intelligently designed synthetic lethal approaches for mesothelioma. Um, hopefully, you know, if any of these hit, then we'll have something that could could help to change practice. At this point in time, though, those are the main I say phase three trials that we're waiting for in the frontline setting. It's great to see so much research being dedicated uh, to this disease, these big studies being done pretty quickly. And, you know, there's, there's a lot more that I, I wanted to get to, but we are running out of time. So 
Uh, I think we need to close this episode. I want to thank both uh, of our guests today, not just for spending time with us and our listeners, but for both of their continued commitment to advancing the treatment for mesothelioma, to providing such important care for patients with mesothelioma. So Federica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen, for this invitation. And also thanks, Dean, for this really exciting discussion. Thanks to everyone listening. Yeah, and Dean, thank you for for being so generous with your time and and for all the work that you're doing. I really appreciate the invitation. Lovely to speak with Federica yourself. Thank you so much again. And thanks, everyone, for, for listening. Reminder that you can download new episodes of Lung Cancer Considered every Tuesday and Thursday, the first and third weeks of every month, uh, to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 